Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there. No questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story and their story is your story and then it's our story and then it's a podcast so it's everybody's story and then you've shared it and gosh that's great huh and even if you don't think you're a nerd you probably are it's easily the most midwestern thing i've ever been a part of hi everybody I'm Eric Garneau, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, now going into its sixth year in existence. Holy shit! Of course, before we get to the all-new stuff, we've got one last celebration of what's come before. And if you listen to this show, you've heard me plug it a ton. This is our five-year anniversary episode, recorded at The Hideout in December. Performing at this venue was an incredible treat, and I'm so happy with what came out of it. Today... You'll get all new pieces from show favorites Chris Geiger, Bill Bullock, Katie Johnston-Smith, Jonathan Lester, and Larissa Zagaris, plus music from myself, Dwight Hassler, Jim Snedeker, and for the first time ever, making a full band on the show, Mike Jando on drums and Chris Blake on keyboards. This is so cool. Uh, just a note, as you listen to this episode, the audio on the songs isn't as crisp as usual, but it's really tough to record a full band. And seriously, big, big thanks to The Hideout for putting our show up here and also recording it for, uh, for us. Their sound guy was one of the most patient, kind dudes we've ever worked with at a venue, and I'm so happy he was able to capture this show like he did. We hope you all enjoy it. Uh, the nerds have some sweet stuff and likely some big changes coming up in 2017. I'll be back next week with some news on upcoming shows, including Your Story Chicago with a new band member and a couple of LA dates. But for now, please, let's go to The Hideout. Hello. Welcome to the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories five-year anniversary yeah. show. Five goddamn years. That's a long I gave time. Some, I gave something wooden to Eric earlier That's yeah. for the five years. Yeah, he did. Oh, baby. Thank you all so much for being here tonight on this blustery December evening at the hideout. Uh, this is really special. I'm really happy we could celebrate. Hey, we have a full band for the first time ever at Your Stories. I think you guys know Dwight and Jim. It's Chris Blake over there, Mike Jando on drums. And uh, we're going to play some rock and roll for you. So basically, I just asked everyone in the band to pick a song they always wanted to do if they played with a cover band. And uh, these were the songs that got picked. So nothing too special tonight, but uh, we hope you enjoy them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
That's not how you sell it. Nothing too special. Tonight is very special. Very it's special. pretty fucking special if you ask me. Let's see those fucking hands. It's fun. See my hands Just look at a shake And the vibes are deep So repeating Drop the needle again And I dance with your ghost Oh but that ain't the way I can't move on And it can't stay the same If all my friends say Square. So many mothers 
sighing News had just come over We had five years left to cry in News guy wept and he told us Earth was really dying Cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he wasn't lying I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies I saw boys, toys, electric irons and TVs My brain hurt like a warehouse It had no room to spare I had to cram so many things to store Everything in there, all the fat went off her head hit some tiny children if the black hadn't have pulled her off well I think she would have killed them a soldier with a broken arm fixed his stare to the wheels of a Cadillac Cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest And a queer threw up at the sight of that And I think I saw you in an ice cream parlor Drinking milkshakes cold and long Smiling and waving and looking so fine I don't think you knew you were in this song But it was cold and it rained, so I felt like an actor And I thought of mom And I wanted to go back there Your face, your race The way that you talk I kiss you, you're beautiful I want you to walk We've got five years Stuck on my eyes Five years What a surprise We've got five
David Bowie, obviously. Five years. So I didn't say this at the top because I think everybody here probably knows what this show is. But just in case you don't, so this was born out of a sketch comedy group called the Nerdalogs that has been going for seven years. David Bowie does not have a song called Seven Years. But uh, the first speaker coming to the stage tonight is one of two, or there's one one of the like three founding members in the room right now, which is really exciting, and we're really happy to have him here. This is Chris Geiger. Hello, everybody. Hey, Chris. Hi. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, your stories is an incredible thing. You know, I can't believe it's gone on for as long as it has, and I'm honored to speak here tonight at the fifth anniversary. Uh, It began very humbly as an off-night show that we used to do before it was even a podcast where uh, people told some incredible stories But I won't bore you with uh, my own retelling of those events, uh, because, hey, you can find those on the archives. There's an archive. (laughs) To this day, even that still blows me away. Uh, And while I may have contributed in some small part uh, to the inception of this event and its continued existence is probably one of those things that I'm uh, most proud of injecting some creative DNA into, uh, this, this event's wonderful aura And a beautiful community can almost entirely be attributed to one man, Mr. Eric Garneau. So uh, thank you for creating and continuing this. Doing a story here always feels like coming home in its own way. So I, uh, I didn't really tell stories here for a little bit because things change. You know, our priorities change. Our lives incredibly go shooting on this journey that we have no control over while still mustering some uh, feeble attempts at controlling. You know, five plus years ago, we had no idea what we had started, how many stories would be told, how many lives impacted in even the smallest of ways. I had no conception of a world where the president could beat Donald Trump, (laughs) where the Cubs could win the World Series, and where I could be called a cuck online for calling a hot dog not a sandwich. you on that. You know, change is one of those things that you desire and lament. You want change all the time to make a little bit more money, to have a new relationship or to further cement your current one, to get a new place or maybe even add someone to your family. Or you want big societal changes like equal pay for women and minorities or universal health care, but change is happening all around us in large hurricane force ways like being slammed in the face with Prince has died and in little imperceptible earthquake-like ways under your feet with like Star Wars has had, now had two movies with female leads. And it's, it's, it's hard to measure. We can't really quantify how much our lives are changing without some sort of metric. But they're changing in larger ways beyond those metrics. Our friends move to new cities, and what does that mean for those of us who were left behind? Our old loves move on, and new ones begin, and what does that mean for your life now? We desire change, but we can't tell you how much. We just know that our lives are changing, and we want to control how it goes. That's life. For me, I went through a lot of major changes this year, which, again, check out the archive. (laughs) 
And, and metrically, I had a very perceptible change. I lost a lot of weight. I started, thank you, I started this way. I mean, it sucks. It sucks that someone's like, you look great. And I'm like, yeah, I looked like shit before. I had, I had a very perceptible change. I lost a lot of weight. I started this year at a robust 250 plus pounds. And I'm happy to say that I'm closing in on under 200. And I'm wearing the sweater as a sort of remembrance of that. Because uh, five years and 50 pounds ago, this was my favorite sweater that I could no longer fit in. <laughs> and now I'm back in it. But beneath my feet were changes that are constantly surfacing in difficult ways. I don't do theater anymore, which was my life for 10 plus years. So what do I do now? My girlfriend and I broke up at the beginning of this year, and then again this year, and then again this year. So what do I do now? I remember at my most exhausted times, working at two jobs, burning the candles at both ends, wanting nothing more than change. And now it's here, and I don't know what to do with it. I bring this all up to say, for one thing to evolve positively and cons consistently over five years in the face of changes is no small achievement. We're together tonight to celebrate the fact that this wonderful little podcast existed while the rest of us and the world around it turned into gosh dang mush. People did stupid things like elect Donald Trump and did amazing things like win the World Series for the first time in 108 years. And this podcast chronicled and will continue to chronicle it all, all of our fears, all of our hopes, and all of our changes in the most honest voices there can be, your own. And the beauty of that archive is that you can attribute equality to otherwise imperceptible change. I can look back on the stories I told five years ago and remember my wide-eyed enthusiasm about theater and about life, and it wasn't just a memory to reflect on. I can hear my voice say those words, and they're maybe foreign to me as the person I am now and the person I will become, but I can reflect on that, how that came to be. But even more incredible are the listeners who have given life to this podcast in such unique ways, who internalize those stories from so many and chronicle their own changes by them. I've had listeners I have never met previously tell me how a story of mine reflected their own experience, or even more inexplicably, changed their life. Which makes you realize that while you may be reaching out to feel the world slightly shaking beneath your own feet, you are creating little earthquakes that shake the world under someone else's. We are facing an era of great change and turmoil with the ongoing nightmare political climate and climate change and societal instability our challenges have never been greater. So please, while you're getting hit with the hurricane force winds and aftershocks of change, take the time to take stock, record, and listen to others. And hopefully this podcast will continue as a record of those fears, hopes, and dreams of the many lovely people who will enlighten us and honor us with their stories. Thank you. Chris Geiger, ladies and gentlemen, man. I had a strong sense that it was the right move to start with Chris. Thank you, Chris. That was wonderful and lovely. 
So from the old to the new, uh, this gentleman first started doing our show just this year. He is an incredibly accomplished and talented and hilarious Chicago stand-up. He runs a room at Cole's, I think, the third Sunday of every month, which always coincides with our regular show. So I think every time he does our show, he has to go do his show, too. Uh, but he's a super great dude. Mr. Bill Bullock, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. That shows every Sunday of the month, except for the fact that it's canceled now, so don't worry about it at all. It's uh, no longer exists. It's not sad. I'm doing a lot more than I ever did. I wouldn't have time for it at this point anyway. Uh, hey, thanks. I'm Bill. I have a, a, a story, but I think it's weird. Like, I want to talk about me. Like, that's all I really ever want to talk about. That's what all my writing is about. Uh, that snare drum is driving me crazy. Um, but, like... Do you guys ever notice how, like, being alive is a nightmare all the time? Like, you ever notice that? Like, it's weird because the weirdest part about that is that, like, you don't choose that ever. Like, one day you just have a corporeal form and you have to have it and use it right or people yell at you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and n never has that been more apparent and weird and important in, than in the last few years um, and probably in the next four years to me, you know, because like, I, oh, the, for the podcast listeners, I'm black. I'm a black person. I know you guys are looking at me, so that seems absurd to say out loud. But close your eyes and imagine you didn't see me at all. Sound like black guy on stage with a microphone? No, it doesn't. Okay. But it's weird because people hate you for looking like this sometimes. Like, that's a thing. People hate me for looking like this, just for being this, for existing at all. And that's crazy, because, like, they shouldn't hate me for that. Like, we have so much in common. Like, nobody hates me for being alive more than I do. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you should be on my side about this. So, on election day, uh, with that existential joke process that I just gave you. That's how my mind works. Keep that in mind as you know that I wake up on election day like all of you probably did. I don't know your life. Uh, and I was stressed the fuck out. I was having an existentially angsty moment, right? Like a lot. Like at the time I thought it was pretty, like rationally things made sense. Should have been the way that we probably all in this room probably would have wanted it. So I woke up, but I was still stressed, and I told myself I'm going to go vote, and then I'm going to like have a day to myself, and just like treat myself well, practice self-care, have a good time. So as I'm walking out of my house having this thought, I put my hand on my car door to open the car, and then I went, no. It's still nice in November. I'm getting my bike! And I walk back in my house, get my bike, and then I ride my bike to go vote. And this was the beginning of the end of my whole entire day. Because here's the thing, I chose to bike around, once I chose to take my bike to vote, that meant I was with my bike all for the rest of the day, because it changed the timeline of everything else I was gonna do for that day. I was gonna go vote, get a motherfucking haircut, because look at this dope shit, like I gotta maintain it. And then I was gonna like get some food and then go to an election party where we would celebrate Hillary's ascension. You know what I mean? Like, 
And it was, and here's the thing about me. You're on my side, but this is true. I'm an opportunist. And I was hanging out with like all of these like lady journalists. That was the point of this, like this part, it was a party for lady journalists and this idiot. And I was like, this is the moment. They're going to all be like, who do I interview? Oh, you work for Jezebel. You work for Wonkette. Bill, you don't work for anybody. Let's get you on here. So I'm thinking I'm going to get some like, on this day, a black feminist is out here like saying some nice shit about it and get pressed about So, as I get back, I, got, I, I stopped into my house just for a bite to eat, and then I was going to ride over to the bar. I'm sorry if I'm a little long, but this story's a little long. Uh... I got, I got to my house, ate some food, and I just turned on the news. It was pretty early at that point. And things seemed fine. And so I had a drink, uh, and then I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to ride over to the bar where this party is going to happen. And in that time, a lot of things changed, right? And so I'm feeling pretty good about my day. I got my hair cut. I look fresh. I might get some interviews from these Wonkette people. And I'm riding my bike, and I get to the bar, and I lock my shit up, and I'm like, ladies, let's turn up for Hillary! And it's not a party at all. It's now the Wailing Wall. Like, <laughs> it was like, literally, like, women with their arms against the wall like this, screaming against the wall like, how is this happening? Like, literally, white feminists just, like, bawling their eyes out. And I was like, this doesn't look okay. <laughs> like, I was like... I looked up at the screen, I saw what was happening, and I was like, oh, as much of an opportunist as I am, I don't want this to be where I am when the world ends. <laughs> like, I gotta go find some black people. Like, I'm, cause, cause here's the thing you need to know. N not only were these women like, there, there was mostly journalists there, but there were a lot of other people there, a lot of other performers, a lot of other like writers and stuff, but all of them, the one thing they had in common besides me was that they were ride or fucking die Hillary. They didn't like hold their nose and vote for Hillary. They, they, were, they didn't vote for Bernie ever. You know what I mean? Like they voted for Hillary on day one. They voted for Hillary on the day they were born. Do you see what I'm saying? Like they were, this was the ride or die motherfucking Hillary people. And the rest of the party had left because it was, to, in their minds, they weren't ride or die Hillary in the first place, right? So it was no longer a party. It was just like eight women crying at the bar and passing out Xanax like that SNL sketch that happened for real. <laughs> and I was like, man, as much as I want to be here for the thing, like to, for what, I don't know what's going to happen next. I might get some press out of it. But I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to be here. So I'm, I go up, and my friend Robin's like, what are we going to do? And she's, like, crying. And I'm like, well, I'm going to get out of here. I'll see you, Robin. Hey, thanks, Robin, for everything, but uh, I got to go. You know what I mean? Like, and she's, cr she's just crying. It's like, all right. And I'm just watching her as I bike away. And, I, and, a, and a good friend of mine who's a very smart, uh, very... Uh, progressively active black woman happened to text me at that same time and I went and met up with her. But in the time that it took me to meet up with her, shit got really real, you know? Like it was like, oh, this is not just like, she's gonna lose, but it's gonna be like, this is gonna be horrible. Everything's sinking in everybody and I get there and it was just like, whoo boy, what a fucking nightmare. And this is capping off 2016 real good. Like this was, 
Okay, so 2016's been bad the whole time, by the way. You guys know that, right? Like, in January, I was in a karaoke bar trying to sing Bowie when I found out Bowie just died. Like, that was the beginning of 2016 for me. And then Prince died, and then Gene Wilder died. Like, I didn't know all three of my sex idols were going to die in the same year, you know what I mean? Like, have you seen Willy Wonka? That's a Prince outfit. It's sexy! Okay. But it's been bad. Like, and then there was like five minutes where it was bad, but also good when the Cubs won. Because I'm from the South Side. I don't know if you guys know, but all of the black people are. Uh, and there was a brief, like, there was a brief moment where I was laughing, and I was like, "There's no way the Cubs are gonna. Everybody thinks they're gonna win. That's ridiculous. All you people who think they're gonna win, that's ridiculous. All right, well, they're going to the World Series, but they're not gonna win. I'm serious. They're not gonna win. Oh shit! Their opponent is the Cleveland. Indians. This could not actually go my way. You see how I'm just talking about the election again? Like, I'm just talking about the election again. It's, all, it's just not been good. It's not been good. And um, I don't think it's over yet. And this is true. Like, I know this is going to sound... Just remember you were on my side when I started this story, okay? I don't... There's... You know, it's mid-December. We have the rest of December left before this year is actually officially over. I think we might not have seen the last of this shit. Um, I think that um, one more thing is going to happen, and that is that Oprah is going to die on Christmas Day. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Did you, you guys all heard it when I said, is going to die. Someone said, no. I'm a comic. Normally when I say something that's not funny, people just give me silence, and that's fine. I'm used to that. Normally when I say something that's not funny, people don't go, don't say that, no. <laughs> they might hear you. I'm like, who might hear me? Like, 2016's been so bad that if I say Oprah might die on Christmas Day, that's plausible. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's how bad it is. But I think that, and then I'll leave you after I tell you this. I think that it might actually be a good thing if Oprah dies of a stroke on Christmas Day. Here's why. Our nation is super fucking fractured right now. And it's Christmas time. This is the time we're supposed to like bring each other together. But even in that bringing together, there's fracturedness, right? Like Christmas is for Christians. Hanukkah is for Jewish people. Kwanzaa is for, I'm going to be honest, I don't even know. But seriously, like even in our time to like bring each other together, give, there's still this weird dividing lines, right? But I don't think there would be anybody who'd be like divided if Oprah died on Christmas Day that we no longer call it Christmas Day. We just start calling it Oprah Day. Like we stop decorating the tree and we start decorating the chair under which the sticker that says you've won a car is. Nothing would be more unifying than if we celebrated Oprah on Christmas Day. You know what I mean? It'd be like, you get a gift. You get a gift. You get a gift, you get a gift, you get a gift. Everybody gets a gift, you know what I mean? And that's why I think that Oprah might need to die on Christmas Day, okay? I'm gonna go now and <laughs> leave you to compliment. <laughs> if she dies on Christmas Day, I'm like definitely going to jail now. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Bill Bullock. Give it up for Bill, everybody. 
I, I do think in all seriousness, I think Bill is right that like it's not over. And I was I was gonna genuinely quote uh, the you know the the famous theme song. Well, as long as we got each other, and then that also brings us back to the sad things of 2016. So um, sorry about that, Alan. So. At the beginning of the night, we heard from one of the founding Nerdalogs members. We are now going to hear from the newest, although she's been in the group for two years, but, you know, that's that's a short amount of time in, in Nerdalogs time. Uh, in that time, she has uh, written, or, or she wrote before, but she reproduced the wonderful show, Attend the Tale of Danny Tanner, a full house musical. Um, she's also DJ Tanner, currently enjoying her resurgence on Netflix. This is Katie Johnston-Smith. Uh, Bill, true story, when I was a uh, very religious Christian teen, one of my youth leaders told me that she thought Oprah might be the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's real. Uh, that's very real. Um, cool. Uh, yes, hi. I am Katie. And um, if you've spent any sort of time around me in like a business professional type setting, you are probably very aware that I have a musical theater degree because I more than likely yelled that fact at you after you asked me to solve a math problem. <clears throat> uh, I graduated from Belmont University in 2009, and to save you the chore of performing any quick math in your head, I'm 30. I've been 30 for 1.5 weeks, and it's fine. It's fine. Happy birthday to me. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, yeah, so I have a musical theater degree, but um, I'm not sure I am really what you ha would have previously called a musical theater person, um, because during the summer between my junior and senior years of high school, um, like I attended this really great musical theater pre-college program at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, um, and the program was filled with talented teens who had huge boners for contemporary Broadway shows like Thoroughly Modern Millie uh, starring uh, Carnegie Mellon dropout Sutton Foster. Um, and in this pre-YouTube era, I uh, had really only been exposed to movie musicals and whichever classic musical my high school produced from year to year. So when we learned that Sutton Foster would be paying the pre-college program a visit, I was literally the only person who did not burst into tears while simul simultaneously coming in my pants. Um, and I was probably also the only person who didn't ask Sutton Foster for her autograph, but looked up to her because she's very tall. And I was just like, hey. And she was like, hey. And that was it. Um, <laughs> so while attending college from 2005 to 2009, again, remember, that makes me 30, um, or uh, what shall henceforth be known as peak Jason Robert Brown season, um, yes, I rectified the musical theater unexposure of my high school years by fully immersing myself in the culture. Um, the work of composer and lyricist Jason Robert Brown quickly became my favorite thing to listen to, uh, namely his two-person musical, The Last Five Years. The Last Five Years is a story filled with... Yeah, I'm not my uh, <laughs> uh, The Last Five Years is a story filled with... 
last five years is a story filled with songs, both joyful and tragic, about the various stages of falling into and out of love. And the students of my musical theater program, and likely all musical theater programs, if we're being honest, loved to sing songs from that musical, uh, mostly to prove to themselves and others that they could cry while singing. <clears throat> Many of my peers were excellent cry-while-singing performers, and I was merely okay. In order to both play to my strengths and have the honor of singing a song from the last five years, I made my first foray into the world of comedic songwriting. Uh, I wrote a parody song of Still Hurting from the last five years. Uh, in this song, I played a uh, satirized version of a musical theater actor attempting to show off her cry singing abilities for an audition by using Still Hurting as her emotional vehicle. <clears throat> and I considered singing that song for you tonight, um, but luckily for you, uh, I understand that it definitely sounds like I wrote it in college. <laughs> <laughs> So don't worry. And if you want to watch it, we live in a, a, like an, a, an existing YouTube era now, so you can watch it on YouTube. Um, uh, and uh, in present day, uh, I don't know if I would really call myself a musical theater person. I do love musicals, and I co-wrote a musical, Attend the Tale of Danny Tanner, a Full House musical. It is also on YouTube. Um, and I think traditional musical structure is a fucking masterpiece, and I've been lucky enough to see Hamilton, and um, I also know who Sutton Foster is now. <laughs> but um, I would say that it is not like a part of my very soul. Um, these days, I mostly use my degree as a way to trick my coworkers into praising me for knowing how to use a VLOOKUP. <laughs> Thank you. Katie Johnson-Smith, everybody. A musical person, not a musical person. Katie is super talented, though. And in Nerdalog's meeting, she always is pushing us to like do opening numbers for our show. So that, that much of a musical person has remained in Katie. Uh, so this next gentleman coming to the stage, I have to get this out of the way. He has a, uh, a very famous name. So let me just clear up some, uh, some things you guys might be worried about. So he did uh, get a jersey for the Chicago Cubs just a couple of years ago. He was in Cleveland uh, for this thing called Game 7. You know, he was there for the celebration. Uh, you might call him an all-star of the forensic accounting world. He's one of my best friends, Jonathan Lester. <laughs> He actually did go to game seven. That is true. And you bought that Lester jersey like first day, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, how can you not? Like, people always say you're a tool if you buy one with your name on the back. But, like, no one knows I'm a tool. I can still have my name on the back, though. So it's awesome. <laughs> Works out great. Uh, well, thank you, Eric, uh, for that introduction. That was accurate yet misleading. Uh, so uh, before I get started, I, I really just want to say I'm really honored to be here. Uh, I, you know, I'm not a performer. Uh, you know, Eric mentioned I'm an, I have an accounting degree. So uh, to be a part of the five-year anniversary and to, uh, to be asked to be here when there have been so many amazing storytellers and stories over the last five years, it, it really means a lot to me. So I really appreciate that. Uh, love you, man. Love you, too. Uh, so uh, very imaginatively in my accounting brain, uh, when I started to think of a story for tonight, I was like, what happened to me five years ago? Uh, and, you know, I thought... I was like, you know, I was thinking, podcast, like that'll ever catch on. <laughs> Prescient. Uh, a little, 
but a little over five years ago, I, I actually I got married, so uh, which was great. Um, the story is not about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this story is about uh, five years ago, this month, I actually got a new job. Uh, and up until that point in my career, I had worked at a public accounting firm, uh, which I had some great projects, uh, but I also had a lot of soul-sucking, uh, made me want to die work. So I really needed something new. Uh, and about this time, I had gotten an opportunity to go work at a big company in the Chicago area, uh, working in audit. Now, for those of you tuning out right now, because I just said the word audit, I promise I will make it worth it if you just focus up for like 10 more seconds, I promise. Uh, so it was not the normal financial auditing, not like the IRS coming to break down your door kind of thing. It was compliance auditing. So it was all about uh, code of ethics, uh, compliance with laws, anti-bribery statutes, things like that. So it was more interesting work, and I felt like I was somewhat doing a public service while, you know, working for corporate overlords. So I felt a little better about myself as, you know, my, my white liberal guilt. So, uh, and it was really great. The other great part about it was it was an international role. So I would spend four weeks at a time out of the country in a location uh, and getting to travel on weekends and things like that and then come home for three weeks and then do it again. And this was really amazing to me uh, because I grew up in a really small town in downstate Illinois, uh, population 500. I'm rounding up now because of the census. Uh, <laughs> some people moved in. Uh, and I, I've described it before on this podcast as uh, no stoplights, uh, no gas stations, no McDonald's. So really tiny. And um, as part of that whole small town thing, uh, my parents were kind of the embodiment of that. They'd grown up there, gone to high school, high school sweethearts, gotten married. Uh, and didn't want to leave, especially my dad. Uh, so we never really took family vacations. Uh, we took a couple road trips growing up, but my dad had actually never been on a plane until he was 58, and that was the only time he's ever been on a plane. So, you know, we weren't driving to Ireland, so, you know, kind of missed an important step there. And growing up in this small town, uh, we lived on the edge of town, so right where the fields started, uh, you know, before you went 15 miles to the next town. And I remember from a really young age, I used to stand on the side of our yard and just stare out over the fields and you know, beyond the farmhouses and beyond the fertilizer plant, beyond that one tree that was in the middle of the field. Uh, I used to stare at the horizon and just think to myself, what's out there? You know, what could there be? Uh, I actually used to pour over atlases that we had and just look at interstates in the United States and uh, uh, just look at where roads went. Uh, you know, if we kept driving, where would you get to? Uh, to this day, I still have a bunch of random, useless knowledge about the United States interstate system. So if you want to catch me afterwards for a really interesting discussion, <laughs> that's what you bring up. Um, but, you know, it wasn't big dreams. It was just what is outside of central Illinois. So to have this opportunity to, to leave the country, to get stamps on my passport, was amazing. So on January 2nd, 2012, I was on a plane to Egypt uh, for my first audit. And... This blew my mind. You could get on a plane and go to Egypt. Like, that was a thing. It was this, like, mystical land of pyramids and sphinxes and pharaohs. Like, that was a thing you could go to. Uh, and it was, it was incredible. And, you know, I was only in that role for about 18 months, but I did a lot of crazy things. Uh, I, I visited 33 countries. Um, I, I bungee jumped at Victoria Falls. I, I watched the sunrise over the Taj Mahal. Um, I got drunk and passed out in the Canary Islands on the beach face down. <laughs> I'm slightly less proud of that one. Uh, 
but it wasn't all fun and games. Uh, you know, I, I had to work, obviously. You know, I did have a job to do and things like that. Uh, but I was also away from everyone I've known so at four, four weeks at a time. So, you know, it strained my relationships with friends and family and my husband. So, um, you know, it was difficult. But when you're racking up thousands of frequent flyer miles <laughs> weekly, uh, you know, there's some perks. So I was actually able to take my husband, Kevin, uh, to the south of France. And we went to Rome and saw the Sistine Chapel and went to Singapore and all these other trips. And to be able to share that with someone who I love and admire more than I thought was ever possible um, was really meaningful to me. Um, but beyond that, uh, it was the other people I met though on these trips. You know, obviously my coworkers in the offices, uh, but also you know you spend a month in a hotel, you meet the people in the hotel, the restaurant, your drivers, your translators, and people in bars. And it was incredible to meet all these people in these different cultures and kind of immerse myself in this culture uh, at each of these places, and kind of learn the differences and similarities between us and. You know, to obviously see that there's so much we're similar with other people outside of the U.S. Um, but one of the things that really crystallized for me why I used to stare over the fields, I always thought it was because I wanted to leave. Um, and I did. I very desperately wanted to leave. And I did the first chance I got. Um, but I, in a small town, you know, everyone seems like they're the same. In my town, everyone was very white, um, very conservative Christian. Um, and I wasn't. I was different. And that difference was the source of a lot of fear and self-hatred and sadness. And it made me feel broken. Um, and being able to travel and meet people who were different from me, but even different from each other and these different cultures showed me that difference doesn't mean broken. It just means different. And that's fine. Um, and learning that was better than anything I imagined was over the horizon. Thank you. John Lester, everybody. Man, oh, this one, there we go. I always told John, you know, maybe you're, you did pick accountant as a career path, but you are amazing on stage, dude. Let's give it up for John one more time. So great. Did anybody else hear Luke's theme when he started talking about looking out past the farms? And da na 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 Plus, like, sand people are rough in central Illinois. That actually sounds like a racial slur. Like, I always thought that, like, Ben shouldn't throw that word around so carelessly. Sand people. They're Tuscan Raiders. Like, don't call them sand people. That's not cool. <laughs> Old man. Anyway, we have one more storyteller this half. Uh, she is also a relative newcomer to your story. She is one of the creators of the amazing uh, illustrated novel, Taylor Swift, Girl Detective. <laughs> which was recently featured as a question answer on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which is fucking cool. Please welcome to the stage Miss Larissa Zagaris. Hi, hi, thanks, thanks for coming tonight. I'm, uh, I'm Larissa. I am honored to be part of this big celebration. Uh, I, when I drew my inspiration from the five years theme uh, directly, I, dire I derived it directly from David Bowie. <laughs> I wanted to prepare this, this wild performance with like little LED lights, and then I wanted to sneak these like magic uh, cards in your uh, coat pockets when you weren't looking, so that when I got to the point where you could say, uh, now pray with me, love, you just like put your pocket, your hands in your pockets, and be like, oh, what's this magic? <laughs> Who did this? I didn't. Uh, 
I had to pick up another shift at Starbucks. Uh, and I, I had no real energy because <laughs> the world's a garbage fire right now. <laughs> so, you know, all I could do was just show up tonight. But I committed to this, okay? And I already asked my friend Craig over there. Yeah! Everybody give it up for Craig. To play the whole spectacle of the song, which I did plan. Uh, so here we are. Uh, and now I will do my next best thing uh, um, to giving you like a, a, what I originally planned, which is like a mind-bending display of, uh, of uh, uh, magic and wonder and, and inspire you in this darkest timeline. Uh, tell a story about myself, obviously. All right. And David Bowie, but uh, most of all myself. <laughs> all right, okay. Uh, and, and before you get excited, uh, uh, I, di I did not memorize uh, any of this. I don't know if you could realize that. I didn't. I, didn't. Um, <laughs> I wrote it down with the power of voodoo, hoodoo, you do. You what? I connected with someone. <laughs> With the power of writing, I wrote this story. With the power of writing. Here we go. <laughs> Woo. Okay. So I grew up in Middle Ethian, Illinois. It's a blue-collar, super working-class suburb just southwest of Chicago. I'd like to say it's a town from a Springsteen song, minus the factory. It's definitely a town minus uh, any aspects of a David Bowie song. <laughs> Unless you count the rough parts from Life on Mars. <laughs> and when I was growing up there in the late 80s and the 90s, it was a place that uh, was kind of more to close-mindedness. You know, the Irish Catholic family legacies and the Sabar high school football. <laughs> than to anything sensitive or artistic. Uh, as an adult, I know that was less due to a primal evil being slowly leached into the water source, <laughs> and more because everyone was so damn overworked and underpaid. Still, Middle Ethian is and was the town that pride built, not the town that crybaby art kids build. <laughs> I was definitely a crybaby artsy kid. <laughs> I mean. I was my town's Billy Elliot. Uh, but like a Billy Elliot who wasn't good at dancing? I, I was the Billy Elliot of having feelings. Feelings I wanted to share with everyone around me to trade and gather like pogs. Feelings that I thought I could build a bridge between me and us and everyone commonalities running through us all like gold seams through mountains of adversity. And this is not what happened. Instead, most of the kids in my town did what any kids worth their salt would do when they detected this kind of epic level of raw nerve in their midst. <laughs> they poked it really hard. And the result was spending my tender youth crying literally everywhere a human being could cry at almost all times, 
to the infinite frustration of well-meaning friends, family, the mental health staff at my school, and the silver lining on this fat black cloud holding court over my youth is that I got to retreat into the old sanctuary for sensitive artistic children everywhere. The movies! I thought we were gonna say it together. <laughs> Meeting David Bowie in the movie Labyrinth in these formative, creative, crybaby years was key in my development of a strong sense of curiosity and self. And when my best friend, also a crybaby, and uh, my sister, not a crybaby, uh, and I first got our hands on Labyrinth, I felt that friction that we all feel when we meet someone who's important to us. That feeling where you just no, someone is going to matter to you. Also, at first, I thought he was a she. <laughs> a godmother, scary-ish lady with uh, witchy killer hair and makeup, uh, jiggling codpiece and questionable moral compass nonwithstanding. Uh, I took David Bowie for a female role model. A powerful weirdo I could look up to, emulate, and one day, become. <laughs> and then my mom told me, that's not a lady, Larissa. That's David Bowie. Okay, so the beautiful, <laughs> scary-ish witch lady was a man. A man that seemed like he came from another planet very far from my tired, tiny, overworked little town. A power weirdo I could look up to emulate, and still one day become-ish. So flash forward to crybaby art, crybaby art kid teen years. Less crying, more eye makeup. I am confident, I am sassy. I am a 17-year-old wannabe filmmaker who's smarter than everyone else, and I work at Chuck E. Cheese where I once found my power source in raw feeling, now I find it writing in my journal, laughing with my friends, making out with my boyfriend, and spending my Chucky e. Cheese money, Chucky E. Cheese money, on gas and used CDs. I am better than everyone in my town, and I sing along at the top of my lungs to Ziggy Stardust to prove it. I use my infinite power of introspection to realize I am a unique space flower, and a unique space flower does not get watered here. I am confident now, and I use this confidence to claw my way out of my hometown and into outrageous debt and prestige at New York University. Yeah. See, college is the first place many people who think they need college to develop self-confidence and develop I mean, really, any self-confidence. It's just where they learn how to be talented and skilled and sexy in their own way. They make some of the truest friends they might ever have in life, and they get on a career track that gets them to their ultimate gainful employment and thus satisfaction. Did that happen? <laughs> well, I did all that, and I choked. And now I'm surrounded by people who have never had to fight to be confident. 
They just were. Far from my blue-collar brethren's disdain for frivolous things, like art and feelings, I was suddenly surrounded by kids of the rich and famous who got rich and famous for being artistic. I went from feeling like the specialist space flower on the planet to common space weed. And a very poor one at that. Until I started having sex dreams about David Bowie. Again and again, night after night, Bowie gave me orgasms and life counsel. We hung out in his moon jacuzzi and talked about matters of life, art, my friends, my enemies. He told me not to worry that I was poor and that goals felt impossible to achieve. And then he looked the hell out of my ear. He had a breezy, seen-it-all, fuck-it-and-carry-on attitude that was so unlike mine at the time that I think there was just some element of me tapping into his subconscious in these little stacks and chats. I know it sounds a little wild, but, I mean, a girl can dream, right? That's all I had. That's all I had. And, you know, these dreams, they made me feel a little bit brighter. I was a little bit more in charge. And then when I woke up, I took that afterglow into my days. I got dream screwed by David Bowie, and my non-dreams self head screwed on straight. So confidence, that was mine again. And then one day, I ran into the man himself. Not in a dream, but on Broadway and somewhere between Canal and Houston. <laughs> My friends and I were walking to school when I saw him on. And I was distracted by her just statuesque beauty and sort of body checked the dude who looked like David Bowie with her. <laughs> And it was only after I apologized and the man said, it's all right, hello, in a British accent. That was British. Uh, then I realized the man who looked like David Bowie was actually David Bowie. And when the shock wore off about a block further up away from them, I, I it was like one of the New Yorkiest things that ever happened to me. It was just accented by another one of the New Yorkiest things that happened to me. A group of construction workers who must have also run into David Bowie leaned over the fence and said, How's David Bowie? <laughs> David Bowie! <laughs> My friends and I shouted back, David Bowie! <laughs> and a group of strangers built a little bridge between each other by joyously shouting, David Bowie! <laughs> into one another's faces. <laughs> and since the man was only just a bit south from us at this point, we were all treated to the sound of him faintly laughing <laughs> as we walked away. Body checking David Bowie on the streets of New York was a big moment for me, a magic moment. Not because it was a celebrity encounter, but because it was a celebrity encounter with David Bowie. <laughs> It made him a person instead of an alien, instead of a rock god or a goblin king. He was a living, breathing human being who slept and woke and ate and cried and farted, probably. But he, I, he was also David Bowie. And I think of that moment a lot these days, so many years out of college, so many years of 
actively trying to be the bowiest version of myself. I've had some successes, sure, but I've watched so many friends far ellipse me and have success of their own. I've never made any money. I'm still essentially working at Chuck E. Cheese. And as thankful as I am for my current job and all that it's taught me, it's, it's a far way off from paying from my own artist lab or my own moon jacuzzi. And when it comes to art, I make it, but I, I haven't made it. I made a lot of attempts, and I've probably wasted a lot of time. Maybe it's more out of vanity than desire to grow or change or succeed. So many of my friends are like that too. And in a time where art making seems important, and maybe a way to communicate ideas that makes everyone bristle or shut down or shut people out. It just also seems silly. There's so much else to do. Why pour so much energy into the weird things you happened to be good at when you were a kid? We all have to turn and face the strange. <laughs> I mean, time may change me. But I can't trace time and uh, that. Uh, but maybe that's the gift of Bowie, though, knowing he existed and existing during some of the same time he did gives us the pleasure of trying to be as Bowie as we can be. Even if we're all just cry baby art, baby kids, babies, babies. We're just, we're just babies doomed to fail. We do art and we fail. Thank you. Oh, bollocks! What's, what's that? Who are you? Uh, he said that. I did. Uh, well, we did, if you want to get technical. Well, he's a bit more on temporally unified version of us. We're early in the timeline, you see? And I'm the main Bowie to you, babe, because he was your first Bowie. I can't believe you thought I was a bird flattery. Is Aladdin Sane Bowie trying to talk sense to me right now? <laughs> Halloween Jack, I know you're sad, darling, but let's not add insult to injury. <clears throat> Sounds like you think you... You're at some magic age where you ought to have it all done and sorted, when really that's no age at all. <clears throat> Unless you know. <laughs> Death is imminent, and you decide to release a final masterwork before expiring. Uh, no. <laughs> the day after your birthday, yes. Oh. All right, don't let's be smug about it then. There are versions of myself, yeah? All of yeah. these versions. They all thought they were it until they just weren't. Until it was time for the next thing. The next costume change. Yeah, but uh, those are just versions of you. I mean, you're, you're rock god versions of you. I'm, oh, I'm no not a rock god. rock god, please. <laughs> oh, we are. Yes, we are. We are. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Yeah. People forget about how many times their gods cocked it up. 
and bloody hell I cocked it up. People forget failures and worship glory and doom themselves to diamond dust when they could be a diamond dog scrapping it out in the thick of it just the same. Don't you remember? I was a fascist for a year. All the cocaine. I talked so much nonsense on television. I made that wretched video with Mick. I never wrote my memoirs. I named my kid Zoe, for Christ's sake. And you tried to do that internet thing. Yeah, Bowie net, yes. Rub salt right in the wound. But this is all part of it, love. The failure and the struggle and success is all part of it. That's life. It's beautiful and it's yours. And the only way you can waste it is to pretend the highs and lows of it belong to somebody else. Somebody else like, like gods? The gods are other more successful people. Yeah, look, life is what you do with the glorious afterglow of failure, the success after that. Then you fail again and succeed. It's all water for the space flower, babe. Water for the space flower. That's the spirit! Yeah. Life, a familiar pattern of win-lose, win-lose, shot through with moments of glorious release. Like drugs, yeah. or sex, or a song. And Craig Badney, everyone. Craig Badney! We're going to try this.
Thank you. Thank you guys so much. So this half, you heard the opening and closing tracks of the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. If you haven't heard the whole album, you are wrong. That's your homework. For the rest of this month, fucking listen to the album. One of the best rock records ever. Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy Your Stories, you may also enjoy Dynasty. Dynasty Podcast launched in 2005 as the first ever and longest-running music podcast in the city of Chicago's history. Hosted by Chicago journalist and college educator Jaime Black. For more information, go to www.dynastypodcast.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.